There are an awful lot of highs that are recorded for us in the life of David. One of those extreme lows that everyone knows about out of 2 Samuel 11, next on Truth For Today. Intrigue, romance, adultery, murder, it's all found here in 2 Samuel chapter 9, one of the more famous passages of Scripture for most, even those who are not Christians. But the truths that we find here are pretty profound nonetheless. Welcome to Truth For Today with Pastor Phil Howard. As we continue our Life of David series, we come across one of his darker days, 2 Samuel chapter 11. David and Bathsheba. With the details, here's Pastor Phil Howard and today's program. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, Isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. She had purified herself from her uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. When David was told Uriah did not go home, he asked him, Haven't you just come from a distance? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my master Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open fields. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to him, Stay here one more day, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it he wrote, Put Uriah in the front line where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. 
Moreover, Uriah the Hittite was dead. Joab sent David a full account of the battle. He instructed the messenger, When you have finished giving the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up, and he may ask you, Why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know they would shoot arrows from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, son of Jerubbaseth? Didn't a woman throw an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? Why did you get so close to the wall? If he asked you this, then say to him, Also, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. The messenger set out, and when he arrived, he told David everything Joab had sent him to say. The messenger said to David, The men overpowered us and came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance to the city gate. Then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. David told the messenger, Say this to Joab, Don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him, usually seven days. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over. The law demanded this. Because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives. He inherited the harem, but Saul only had one wife. And your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me 
and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household I am going to bring calamity upon you. Before your very eyes I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you. His own boy, Absalom. And he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret. But I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. I want to speak on fatal attraction. I didn't see the movie, but I read the text. I've been sad all week about the narrative. I've been pulling for David all the way. I want him to finish strong. I want God's leaders to look good. And this, if I could have torn it off the pages of Scripture, I would. But F.B. Meyer says, God never so glorifies the heroes of Scripture that he doesn't show us their weakness. Because the best of men are still just men. And you see here about sin, there are few stronger indications of ignorance of the power and evil of sin than the confident assertion of our ability to resist and subdue it. Charles Head said that. We think we can outdo it. We've grown up used to what displeases God. We've grown up that every day there's over a million acts of adultery at least throughout the world, millions of acts. And if we don't do it ourselves, we pay $7 a pop to go see it done on a screen. We've grown used to it. It's what everybody does. If it brings you pleasure, it must be all right. So the sin of David is not the shocker to our age as it was in an age where we were supposed to represent God and holiness. You see, sin, I heard a lecture this week by Dr. D.A. Carson, who said the greatest uh, theological tension on campuses when he goes to debate and defend Christianity is not the deity of Christ, the inspiration of Scripture, but what is sin? What is sin? Because if you don't know what sin is, you don't need atonement. If it's not a sin, I didn't hurt you. It was just what I wanted to do. This whole idea of a cross and penalty and atonement and substitution, it's a farce when we're not that bad anyway. But when you find the God of the Bible, you find out he has a dictionary that defines what sin is. And he tells us about it. What's the circumstances that led to this man's fall? Uh, David has been uh, on the throne for over 17 years now. Uh, one thing he did before he got there, in 2 Samuel 3, he was in Hebron with six wives. 2 Samuel 5, he picks up some more wives. So he has over 13 wives now and concubines. So you can probably approximate with the concubines, he had access to 25 women in the harem. All he had to do was snap his finger and say, number eight. And he had a date for the night. And she couldn't claim a headache or she'd be dead. You don't stay in the harem and say no to the king. You've got to be available. So we've got this man 
please help me with her, uh, is that uh, you've got a man that's on the throne that can pick up women and just snap of a finger because he's the king. And he goes out at the time Joab's at battle. Some, Matthew Henry was one of the first to say it, he should have been out leading the battle instead of falling in the bed with the wrong woman. Uh, that's, that's nice. That's maybe true. But God never does rebuke him for not leading the armies. Later on, they tell him, don't be out in the battle because we don't want to lose the king. So really, it's innocent in many ways. He gets up maybe from an afternoon nap. It's evening. It's spring. It's beautiful. He goes out and uh, he just looks. And the majority of our temptations come through the eyes. And uh, he, he just looks. And there's no sin in a look, is there? You can't help a look. He didn't plan this. Bathsheba didn't plan it. Now, Bathsheba didn't have a shower. And many Palestinian roofs, where they would sometimes divert water from a stream, and some scholars believe a stream ran through there, and that uh, Bathsheba had a diverted stream channeled to the rooftop. And see, obviously, that was her bathing place all the time. Uh, she's not a seductress in this scenario. She didn't do anything to draw his attention. You said, well, we get her for indiscretion. Okay. But that doesn't give her a motive of plotting. David goes out there and he sees this woman that he says is beautiful. And she's naked. I want to say that shouldn't be a big deal with a man sleeping with 25 women. He's seen a lot of naked women. And he had access to them. So you would think he sees this beautiful woman and he all of a sudden, you know, maybe the temptation arouses him. He automatically says to his, uh, one of his captains, go tell Lucille, I need her tonight. He's a viral man. You don't take on wives in a harem and not have this. But he could have run this way, gone back here, seen the seduction, seen the temptation, but he fails. He does nothing about it. But the circumstances seem all so normal. Everything seems neutral to me on the surface. Nobody is plotting. David wasn't plotting. She wasn't plotting. It just happened in a moment. Not to a sexually starved man. Not to a man in a bad marriage. Not to a man that had no outlet for all of these desires but a man who should have been well satisfied. Why one more, David? Listen to what Dietrich Bonhoeffer says about temptation. In our members, there is a slumbering inclination toward desire, which is both sudden and fierce. With irresistible power, desire seizes mastery of the flesh. All at once a secret smoldering fire is kindled. The flesh burns and is in flames. It makes no difference whether it is a sexual desire or ambition or vanity or desire for revenge or love of fame and power or greed for money. At this moment, God is quite unreal to us. When you're in the grip of a desire that is outside the boundaries of God's will, what we quickly do is forget God is even around. He loses all reality and only desire for the creature is real. The only reality is the devil. 
Satan does not here fill us with hatred of God, but with forgetfulness of God. The lust thus aroused envelops the mind and will of man in deepest darkness. The powers of clear discrimination and of decision are taken from us. The questions present themselves as, is what the flesh desires really sin in this case? It's the line, it's not sin if we love each other. And is it really not permitted to me, yes, expected of me now, here in my particular situation, to appease desire? It is here that everything within me rises up against the Word of God. Therefore, the Bible teaches us in times of temptation in the flesh, there is one command. Flee. Flee fornication. Flee idolatry. Flee youthful lust. Flee the lust of the world. There is no resistance to Satan in lust other than the flight. Every struggle against lust in one's own strength is doomed to failure. You're no match for your own lust. You've got to flee the thing that draws them out. A person, money, power, whatever. What's going on here? The biggest thing going on here is if you track out the verb to send in chapter 11, David is sending for the woman. David is sending letters to Joab. David is sending, it's the predominant verb in the chapter. No mention of God in chapter 11. There's only one God in chapter 11. It's David. Because our historic sin back to the garden is this battle. I want to be the God of my life. I want to determine what's right for me without any outside voice telling me what to do. And man's rebellion and your sin, every time you sin, you play God. Because you know more than the God who commanded. You know more than the God who said, you shall not eat. I will eat. You will die. We play like gods, but we die like men. For God says, when you usurp your authority in the place of God, I will see to it you die. For the wages of sin is death. All of our sin is playing like we're gods in that situation. We call the shots. We don't have to obey an outside authority. And David, when he plays God, gets in big, big trouble. Beware of innocent circumstances. Hear me. If I walked into a North Beach bar, I would expect to be on the guard if I was insane enough to go there. I'm already prepared. Seduction is the agenda of the bar. And I go in, if I'm thrown into environments in this worldly journey that I don't necessarily even choose, but it's loaded with seduction, loaded with adultery, loaded with eyes of adultery, I'm on my guard, I'm cautious. What I'm not on guard is going to a workplace every day where I find myself dressing to please the woman that's the secretary. The psychological attachment to the man that you're now dressing and acting and looking over your shoulder for his approval and sharing with him what you're not sharing with your husband. You get it in church life. Oh, we were working together in the department doing the Lord's work. 
or in the pastor's counseling. I just brought my problem. I was frustrated in my marriage and all of a sudden he said, you know what, I'm frustrated too. And something just drew us together in our common need. And the next thing we knew it, we did something we never dreamed. It's repeated thousands, if not millions of times a day. And what is God doing, looking on? Well, the circumstances were neutral enough, but they become the pivotal turning point. David's life reaches its crescendo at chapter 10. It will now, the rest of Samuel, be rather depressing. Because it will be the unraveling and disintegration of a man that opened a bottle of arsenic in his family tree and it begins to kill. Well, what were the choices that he made? What were the uh, choices that he made that ruined him? Number one, he chose to be his own God. I'll make the decision. When there's a beautiful woman, God, I'm in charge. Whether it's chapter 3, chapter 5, or chapter 11. If I want a woman, nothing stops me. And God's never got it before because he never stole a woman up to now. He never had to kill a man to get another man's wife. But now unguarded sensuality and lust breaks over the boundaries. And now he'll go after any man's wife. This is a man after God's own heart. This is a man God chose to lead his people Israel. It's like the youth worker. They, someone asked him, how's your youth group? He said, everybody's saved from the waist up. Nobody's saved waist down. They never get enough God to affect what they do with their genitals. They never get enough God to determine what they do with their sexuality. Anything goes, and you can sing the hymns on Sunday. And David now says, I'm the sovereign of Israel. I know Yahweh. And when it comes to this part of my life, it's unguarded. It's unyielding. I will get what I want when I want. And God doesn't even exist when I'm pursuing a woman. Throughout the chapter, you see the verb sin, sin. It's, it's, Eugene Peterson underscores it. It just shows you David's in charge. He's in charge. Man, he's the king. He's the sovereign. But what he has forgotten is there's another sovereign over the earthly sovereign. And this sovereign will have the last word. He chose to pursue lust instead of fleeing it. He, he calls for her. She comes. There were plenty of escape routes. He, he could have got out of it. Plenty. I mean, he had access. He had what was in the Orient, every working man's dream, a lot of wives. You didn't have them because you couldn't afford them. It was a symbol of power. It was a symbol of royalty. Uh, as a whole, it was a monogamous culture. Saul was a, a monogamous. Deuteronomy 17 said, kings of Israel don't have a bunch of wives. David ignored it, and his son Solomon multiplies it. He didn't flee in this area. Studying God's Word that we might grow in grace, that we might be encouraged in our walk and relationship with Him. You're listening to Truth For Today and Pastor Phil Howard. Thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to join us this morning. It's our prayer that our time together has done just that, encouraged you in your relationship with Christ, bolstered you up for the day. 
If you would like to review today's broadcast, copies are available when you contact us. We also have the series today's message was taken from, other resource materials available as well, the recent books authored by our teacher and pastor, Phil Howard. They can all be found at our website, valleybible.org. A lot of resource materials available there, other CDs and series as taught by Pastor Phil Howard recently here at Valley Bible Church. Again, they're all found at our store online, valleybible.org. If you wish to speak with someone directly, call during business hours, Monday through Friday, 855-833-9864. That's 855-833-9864. Or write to us, 1511 M. Sycamore Avenue, Suite 278, Hercules, California. The zip code is 94547. If you'd like to know where we meet for worship, service times, directions, location, it can all be found at our website, valleybible.org, and we would love to see you. Please consider this a formal invitation to join us for worship if you're not involved in a church near you. Again, directions can be found at valleybible.org or by calling 855 855- 833-9864. And again, we mention it from time to time, it bears repeating, as TFT sustainers, financial partners with the radio broadcast, you ensure the continuation of this broadcast here on KFAX. Would you prayerfully consider how you might partner with us financially? And then call us. Let us know that you're interested in becoming a TFT sustainer. We'll pass along our quarterly newsletter to you, a once a year special gift. Take a break with Pastor Phil. The weekly video devotional will be available as well. Again, valleybible.org for more information or call 855-833-9864. No gift is too large or too small. We'd love to hear from you. Call us today and then come back and join us next time for another broadcast of Truth For Today with Pastor Phil Howard. Pastor Phil Howard.